Amen. Well, friends, we have before us uh, today an exciting opportunity, and that is that this summer, the session has a real desire to hire two high-quality summer youth interns. Some of the parents have had an opportunity to talk about that together, and we're inviting you to help us do that. And we are doing that in the form of a Lenten offering. It's an offering during the season of Lent, Lenten describes Lent. And we're going to do that during the normal uh, offering that's going to take place after the sermon. Would you begin to pray about that? The Lenten offering has two goals. The first is to hire high-quality summer youth interns. The second goal is to be able to do Easter worship and perhaps other experiences, other worship Sundays, out on the land. But in order to do that, we have to be able to provide a tent, and we have to have the funds necessary for that. And you may remember that we kept our budget as flat as a pancake this year in order for us to be good stewards and to allow us to be able to respond when we wanted to have opportunities like this um, to be able to participate in those. So would you please prayerfully consider giving to the Linton offering? Our goal is to raise $20,000. And that offering will take place together with our general offering right after the sermon. You're welcome to give online if you want to. I know some of our already have. And uh, you can do that on your phones at give.trinityofalso.com. I mentioned that because the way that we use our resources is important. And I, have, I make no apology about the fact that it's an aspect of our worship. So please pray about how you might participate both in the general and in the Lenten offering, and Harlan will remind us about that again after the sermon. Sound good? All right. Two goals. One, hire interns for the summer, and two, to be able to celebrate worship in two weeks out on the land. It'll be a wonderful Sunday. Thank you so much. The Confession of Faith this morning is from the Heidelberg Catechism. I think it's very interesting that we often do confessions that outdate um, the United States. It's a pretty cool thing. And this morning is actually one of my favorite questions, question and answers from any catechism. Uh, friend, I invite you to confess your faith with me using this. And in, in, as we confess, it is also our cry out to God of who we believe Him to be. Christian, please confess your faith with me. I believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Now in Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. The peace of the Lord be with you always and also with you. Take a moment to stand and greet one another.
Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, would you please take it and open with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. And as you know, we're going through a series on the book of John. And we come now, again, to a story that we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, the story of Jesus and his interaction with a Samaritan woman. So I'll begin reading at verse 27, and I'll go down through verse 42. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word? John four twenty seven through 42. And just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were welcoming him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering food for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Last month, the neighbors at Trinity House poured hot tar all over the driveway. Have you seen it? They brought trucks in, and they poured like this molten black tar all over the place. And they tried to keep it within the confines and the bounds of their area of the parking lot, but of course it oozed over into the grass, and it oozed over into parts of the property that it wasn't supposed to ooze. And that day... I guarantee you, nobody who has a shop around our office went anywhere near that tar. Why? Because it smells horrible. <laughs> because it's sticky. Because it's hot. Because you could get hurt. And so we stay away from it. Hot tar. 
Nobody wants to get near that. The way that Christians view evangelism today is like hot tar. Sticky. Messy. Hot. It oozes beyond its banks. Just step around it. You don't step on it. You could get hurt. Listen. Many people think about TV evangelists and their uh, prosperous lifestyles. Many people think about methods that they have used and had used on them that were filled with arrogance, that were done out of a sense of pride, that were definitely a power play. And you just think about evangelism today, don't you? And you're just kind of like, ugh, hot tar. The kid get hurt. It's messy. Evangelism today has become a term that many people inside and outside the church sneer at. And this perspective makes its way into the depths of our hearts so easily, doesn't it? Like, I'm not, isn't this true? Don't you know that this is true? You feel that word again now, and you're like, ugh, it's hard, it's messy, it's hot. But in this passage, we learn three things about evangelism. And I am not going to back down from that word because evangelism is crucial to Christianity. Hear me out and you'll understand it. To say, um, to say that you like um, vinyl records but you don't like plastic because it's against the environment means that you don't like vinyl records. To say that, um, to say that you like ice cream but you don't like that it's frozen. Like you can call it pudding or soup. You can call it something, but it's not ice cream. And to take evangelism out of Christianity, friends, please hear me. You can call that something, but you cannot call it Christianity. It is intrinsic to what it means to be a believer in Christ. So let me show you from this passage three things. Number one, what evangelism is. Two, why do we do it? And three, how it works. What is evangelism? Why do we do it? And how does it work? First, in this passage, <clears throat> we read what it is. Jesus' disciples interrupt. They come back from a Samaritan town where they had gone to buy food in verse 27. And they interrupt Jesus having a conversation with a woman. Which was shocking to them because the rabbis taught in Jewish culture you would not speak to a woman in public, not even your own wife. And not even that, as we've learned in the last couple of weeks, that this woman was not an ordinary woman. She was a Samaritan. And the Mishnah, the Jewish law books of the interpretation of the Old Testament, teaches that a Samaritan was one who has been unclean since the day they were born. Not even that, but here is a woman who's a Samaritan who is of questionable character. And so they... They, they come to the scene, and, and it says that they think it. They don't say it, but they think. Why is Jesus talking with her? They're probably thinking in their mind, and we know they're thinking about this because John was with them who's writing this. Great. Now we've got to go to Jerusalem and go to the temple for purification ritual, and we're not even close to Jerusalem. And the scene is full of irony in its own right because here you have an outsider. You have a Samaritan woman who, as she is coming in, in to the inside 
and coming to understand the gospel. You have insiders, disciples, who have heard the gospel, who are showing themselves to be those on the outside. And we see Jesus breaking all kinds of social and etiquette uh, rules here. Uh, and he talks with this woman, and he shares with her, very simply, a radical hope, a, a, deep, a deep problem, and a solution to all of her fears. He shares a radical hope, a deep problem, and a solution to all of her fears. And he does it. If you look at the text, he shares this radical hope of what's beautiful and what's possible. Verse 13 and 14. There is a living water that will never leave you thirsty. And she, of course, thinks that he's talking about some magic spring or well. And Jesus, of course, is talking about the good news of what he has come to do for people. And she, knowing that her thirst can be quenched, says, yes, verse 15. Her whole being says, that would be great. He presents a radical hope to her, something radical. And she goes, yes, she resonates with it. Yes. Even though she didn't quite understand the depth of what he meant at first. And then he shows her a problem that her own deep search for meaning and significance has come into dead ends. Six of them, in fact. Five husbands, and now the man she's living with is not her husband. And in discussing her life and her past, she comes to admit that that is true. I see that you're a prophet. Yes. That has been my way to find life. I've been desperate, and I've thrown myself at men because it is the only way I knew how to get by in life. And that's the way sin works. It always promises more than it can deliver, right? That's Jesus' point. We looked at the last couple of weeks. But he continues. And as he's discussing this, he presents to her the solution. I am the living water. I am he. I am he who's speaking to you. Jesus says, I am the answer. And what does it do? When he shares this radical hope of what's possible, he shares a deep problem that she has, and he presents to her a solution, right? He says, I am the living water. I who speak to you am he. I am he. It is not in the temple found in Samaria. It is not in the temple found in Jerusalem. I am he. I'm here. And when she gets it, the living water that she wants, do you want it? And when she gets it, what does she do? She immediately runs off and she does two things. Number one, she leaves and she says, come see a man who just told me everything I ever did. And then two, she says, could this be the Christ? I see that my need has been provided for. And so what is evangelism? Evangelism is simply sharing good news to persuade somebody to believe. Here Jesus confronts her with her need for Christ. And in confronting her, and she then goes and confronts them in the village, she is saying that the provision for our life is Christ. And in order to bring you into eternal life, this is the living water that you are to drink. That's what Jesus says. Now, the term evangelism comes from the Greek term euangelion, the noun. It just means good news. Or euangelizo, the verb, to, to share the good news, right? Romans 10, 15, euangelizo. 
It means simply to share the good news, to persuade others to believe. And you do this all the time, Christian. And you do this all the time, seeker. It's intrinsic to be human, to share good news. I found this new restaurant this week. You're going to love it. Why don't you come with, it, with me to it on Friday night? You want to? It'd be awesome. Or you say, um, you know, when, you're, uh, when you turn 15 and you're about to get your license and you go to the tag agency, right, you bring that little piece of plastic out and you wave it in the air and you say, freedom! I can drive a car! And your parents go, hallelujah! No more carpooling! And it's like this, it's a, it's a proclamation of good news. You're sharing good news, right? You're, you're proclaiming good news in order to help people see that this is obviously true. I have a piece of plastic to prove it, right? It really means no more going to school in the minivan. You share good news all the time. It, it is intrinsic to what it means to be human. Um, you, you'll say... Um, you know, uh, you'll hear a piece of good news from the news and you'll say, hey, listen, it's news. It means it's something that has not yet been heard. You're ignorant. You don't know about it. You, you need this good news. You need this good news to give you security in the world. You need this good news to be able to help make good decisions for the future. It's, it's news that's meant to be shared. I was talking with a TU law student this week who was telling me about uh, his experience in school. He's just about to graduate. And he says, you know, what's funny about law school is it's just kind of taught me to do what I've been doing my whole life. Convincing people. It was interesting in this conversation that here this guy is telling me, basically giving me a lecture on evangelism as a law student because it is intrinsic to human beings to confront each other with good news and to share it. And so... I know, I know, I know. Some of you feel it, and I hear it all the time. People will say, listen, I love, I love Christianity. It's, it's, we love the fact that we live in a relatively Christianized world, right? Christianized. There's like a patina of Christianity, no matter what might be underneath it. I like Christianity, but I just don't like the fact that you're always trying to convert people. Okay. You have a right to say that. But I just want to ask you, um, I want to ask you a question. Are doctors wrong for telling you that you're drinking poison? Well, no, of course not. Um, okay. So if um, it's your right to be able to object, however you might say, and, and you say that, that uh, you know, uh, this is narrow-minded, but is it narrow-minded for somebody to tell you something that's going to save your life? Is that narrow-minded? I don't think it is. Do you? But of course people are going to think that. And people will say to me, for example, well, um, listen, religious truth doesn't work that way. And as soon as somebody says that, mm, do you see what's happened? They have redefined the nature of truth. They have taken the idea of truth and they've changed it and they've categorized it so that they can then define truth in certain areas. And some of you feel that way. Some of you are here and you're like, I love to come to Trinity. You know, I'm, I'm, you know I used to go to a church that had an altar call every week and I felt guilted and now we, we, kinda, we invite people to the Lord's table, which is our altar call, secrets out, right? And, um, but I just don't like when people try to evangelize me. Well, um, 
let me ask you this. Do you think that it's wrong to, um, to call genocide a sin? Anybody here for genocide or racism? Anybody here for racism or genocide? You know, today, this week, today actually in Rwanda, 25 years ago, right, was the horrific genocide of the, of the Tutsis and the Hutus. It's horrible. It was the worst genocide in my lifetime. And they're celebrating and mourning what happened 25 years ago. They're celebrating the end of it, by the way. And they're mourning it today over in Rwanda. But would any of you say that, that genocide is wrong? No, of, of, I don't think so. You could. But then you'd have to be the one who lives out the implications of that. I don't think that anybody would say genocide is wrong. And so you, you can't say that like, I like this aspect of Christianity, but I hate the evangelism part. Because what you really hate is not the evangelism part. What you really hate is the moral truthfulness part. But even you have moral truths that you so easily try to evangelize with others. Nobody likes genocide. And you call that something definitely wrong on what basis? Now the conversation that we're having is a healthy one because we're, diff we're having a conversation about what we fundamentally believe about the way the world works and what the source of objective truth is. So your problem is not with evangelism. Your problem is actually with the nature of religious and moral truth. And then the conversation actually gets off of evangelism. You're using it as a decoy, but what you really don't like is the fact that you have to be told what to do from outside of you, whatever your faith perspective may be. Friend, if you're going to be mad at Christians who are trying to convert you um, to their religion, you're actually not mad at them. You're mad at the existence of moral truth. And what you're mad about is the horrible methods that perhaps somebody has used in order to, to communicate that truth, which I'll get to in just a second. If you say that I... Um, I am mad at evangelism or I don't like evangelism, but I love Christianity, then you have undercut your very ability to be able to call anyone to repent of any sin at all. To evangelize is intricately connected with what it means to be a Christian. And in fact, another conversation you and I can have, it's intricately connected with every moral and religious position that a human being can hold. Genocide's not good for me, but then again, I can't speak for you. I can't impose my values on you. You know, to, you can say that. It's your right to say that. But to change evangelism is to change the heart of what religious truth is. And um, Christian friends, let me just talk to you just for a second. Some of you are really afraid to open your mouth about your faith. And I wish you would. I wish you would share what Christ has done in your heart with others. I wish you would be so bold as to share it with them. Because I hope you didn't get into Christianity because it's exciting, though it is. I hope you didn't get into Christianity because it's dynamic and it transforms your life and your family, though it has. I hope you got into Christianity because it's true. Living water. And if it's not true, then it, it can't be exciting and dynamic and transforming, and we of all people are to be pitied. But if it is true, then you have to share the good news. Anyone who has truth about something shares it. If you have the truth about poison, 
If a doctor came upon some new remedy, he'd write it and put it in the New England Journal of Medicine. He'd go on the Today Show. You share good news. It's intrinsic to what it means to be a human being because anybody who rejects evangelism is not rejecting Christianity. They are redefining religious truth. You can't have it both ways. That's what evangelism is. Second, why do we do it? Well, why does Jesus do it here? He shares good news to persuade her to believe. Why? His disciples, when they come upon the scene, you know, his disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi, you need to eat. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about, verse 32. In other words, Jesus saying, there is something far more important to me than food. It is sharing the good news of the gospel because that is my Father's will for me. Jesus, again, is saying, guys, I have a food you know not of, as the King James Version used to say. I have a food you don't, you don't know about. And it's in the process of sharing the good news of the gospel with other people that I find the deep satisfaction of being in God's will. That's true not just for Jesus, but it's true for all of us. Some things are so beautiful, you can't just see it once. You have to take a friend with you to that concert. You have to invite them into it with you. C.S. Lewis said, the consummation of joy is found in its sharing together. That's what evangelism is. And the motivation for us to evangelize is not out of a sense of guilt. It's out of a sense of tremendous joy. We have food that the world knows not of. Do you enjoy it? Most of us sometimes will be frustrated about like, I mean, I am so frustrated in my spiritual life. I just feel dry and dull and yuck. And one of the ways that we can help grow in that is we can share the good news with others. You can share it with others. And it is amazing when you share the good news with others in the right way, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, with the right motive, as we've just said, out of a sense of joy, not of guilt or trying to check the boxes or put notches in your belt, out of a sense of joy for what he's done for you, then you feel this deep, deep sense of delight that you're in the middle of the Father's will and it's beautiful and it's right. Jesus says, I have food you know not of. The Father's will. And Jesus goes on to say, listen, um, don't say that the harvest is coming in four months' time. The harvest is here today. Don't say, well, next week when I learn, uh, I review my campus crusade for spiritual laws or my navigator's bridge illustration or, or I go back through evangelism explosion, then I'll be able to share the good news. No, beautiful hope, a deep problem in need and a solution. There's your gospel outline. You can share that as easily as you can share any other story in the world because you do it every day. You share about an amazing thing that you just found out, a deep problem that this amazing thing solves. And here's the solution. Think about you technocrats. Gosh, you guys do this with all the technology all the time. Being able to talk about the gospel in ways that you talk about iPhones and new technology is an amazing thing to be able to do as a Christian. It becomes just part of your everyday language. Jesus says that whether you sow, you share the good news, or you reap, you have the beautiful opportunity to see somebody actually believe. The other shoe falls, the penny drops, they believe. You reap. Whatever position you have, you get to rejoice together. Because why? Because God's family works together. 
Some of us have the amazing ability to evangelize and some of us have the amazing ability to help people in the midst of crisis see how the gospel connects to their life. And you see them begin to apply it and to believe it. Regardless of where you are in the process of sharing the faith, you get to rejoice in it together. Now, what is evangelism? It is sharing the good news with the intent to persuade someone to believe. Why do you do it? You do it out of a tremendous sense of joy and delight. You have food the world knows not of. You're in your Father's will and you're delighting in it. It's a joy to do it. Now, most of you are waiting for the third point, which is how it works. How does it work? Well, we have a pastor who does it for a living, so we'll just let him do it. But you know what's interesting in Acts in Acts chapter uh, 8, just after Stephen is stoned, if you have a Bible, you can turn over there in Acts chapter 8. Right after the, uh, Stephen is stoned, what does it say? It says in Acts 8, 1, And there arose a, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except whom? Except the pastors. The people were the ones that were called to evangelize the world. And if you're not convinced, then go down to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Which means you don't have to have a seminary degree. And which means that biblically it was in fact the laity. It was the people in the pews. It was the, it was the people who heard the good news. Not the apostles who then spread the gospel throughout the known world at the time. And the same is true for us today. The problem is we've been trained, at least in my generation, we've been trained using methods that are not well received today. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, navigators or evangelism explosion or the four spiritual laws, you, you have this like, it's like you've got this little weapon and you just kind of pull it out and you just kind of scatter your evangelism every place, and it just comes across as arrogant and ugly and unnatural. How did the early church evangelize? It doesn't say that they all had their four spiritual laws memorized. They went about, they went about preaching the kerygma, the good news. They told the good news about what Jesus has done for them. And how did they do it? They did it in the ancient church through their oikos, through their households. Today, we think about our households, we think about our nuclear family, but they would not have thought just about their nuclear family back then. They would have thought about all those relationship spheres they have in the world. They would have thought undoubtedly about their family, yes, their nuclear family, but they also would have thought about their neighbors. They would have thought about their colleagues with whom they worked. They would have thought about their friends. These are our, our households today. And the way the gospel would work in, the, in, the, uh, in the, uh, early Christianity is that it would go through households, from household to household. And so people would share the gospel with those who they had tight and intimate connections with. And yes, there's a course of time to share the gospel with those you don't know very well because Jesus himself does it in John chapter 4. But that is not the norm of the way the gospel spread through the early church. It spread by people and their families telling other people in their families about the good news. And some of you are here because people in your family have told you about the good news. And so when you think about your own family and you think about your colleagues at work and you think about those on your street, those are your oikoi. 
your oikoses. Those are your households. And those are the ones with whom we are primarily to have eyes to see because you have natural relationships with them already. You don't create a relationship in order to evangelize them. You don't love somebody into a, in, in order to evangelize them. I'll say this very carefully. You don't love someone in order to evangelize them. You share the good news with them in order to more fully love them. You don't bait and switch people. You earn relationships with them. You just do life together. But in order for you to really enter into a loving relationship with this person, you're going to have to share the greatest news in the world because you know it's poison and you're going to tell them about it. And you don't wait only to bring them here, although we're so glad you're here. We want you to bring them. But you begin to prepare them through pre-evangelism, through telling them about your own story, so that when they're ready to believe, they will. Because you've expressed to them, probably in a dozen ways, about this beautiful hope for a life they could lead, a deep problem for why they can't, and for the solution that's found in Christ. The living water. And when you do that, when you begin to do that, you begin to experience the same kind of joy that Jesus felt. And you begin to have the perspective that it doesn't matter what their cultural barriers are. It doesn't matter what they vote for. It doesn't matter what they look like, where they live. You begin to see them as human beings with our common hope for a renewed people. Our common problem, our sin, not theirs. Who are you to look down your nose at anybody, Christian? You've been saved by grace. And our common solution, Christ, the living water. Don't you want it? Today, you can go to our neighbor's parking lot and you can dance all over it. You can drive your car on it. You can certainly walk on it. Why? Because the tar hardens. It's there for a purpose. It's there to make walking to the places of goods and services easier. It's there to help facilitate, not harm, relationships. And so also our evangelism needs to be the same. We share the good news of the gospel because we would be utterly selfish not to. We just need the courage in order to do it. Our common problem, our common hope, our common problem, and our common solution in Christ. That's it. And if you want to know more about how to do it, then please come find me afterward. I'd love to be able to give you a resource that'll help you learn when it comes time to share with them from Scripture what the gospel is, I would love to teach you how better to do that. But don't be intimidated by the fact that you may not know the Romans road or you might not know exactly what Scripture's to share. Tell, their sto tell your story to them, wherever you are, in a way that allows you to then love them fully. Evangelism is simply sharing the good news with the intention to persuade them. You don't beat your friends over the head with the good news about your new workout program or about your new diet or about the new restaurant you found, so you don't beat them over the head with the gospel either. Why should it be any different with the way we share good news? And why do it? Because Jesus shows us how much he knows us and he loves us. And there's joy in it to do your Father's will, to eat a food you, the world knows not of. To tell people that he who is speaking to you is he. Jesus is the living water. He's the one that you've been seeking. He's the savior of the world. 
Notice the Samaritans, when they came back to town, they says it's not just because of the woman's testimony, though it was. It was because they had heard Jesus who dwelt with them. And they said, Jesus, you are our new emperor. You are the true emperor. Savior of the world was, of course, a term ascribed to emperors. You are the new king of my life. And I will do whatever you call me to do. Savior of the world. Living water. He's here. If you don't yet believe in him, friends, he offers you the ability to have your thirst quenched at the deepest level. Would you? And if you're a Christian here, oh, friends, let's share the gospel with our brothers and sisters. And let's use the way that Jesus shares it with the Samaritan woman to guide us and to help us, breaking down barriers, loving her well, sharing the gospel with her in order to love her as a sister in the kingdom. Our family, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, our oikos. That's the way the early church did it. And that's the way the Samaritan woman did it. She ran back to her oikos. Come see a man who told me everything that I did. Could this be the Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to have the courage to share the good news with our neighbors in such a way that shows our deep, deep desire to know them and to love them. Father, I pray that you would help us to repent and to even go to those with whom we have brutally shared the truth about anything with in a way that shows disrespect. But certainly the gospel And help us never to be apologetic, though, of proclaiming the good news in a way that connects with them, just like you connected us through our deep sense of need. So Lord, give us wisdom. Give us joy. And give us courage as your people to not wait for someone else to share it. The harvest is here. White for harvest. Help us have eyes to see how we could share the good news even today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.